you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and here this week uh, with us, uh, with David Scott away uh, up in Burley Heads somewhere, I believe. Uh, it's Sam Jacobs, finance uh, reporter uh, here at Business Insider. How are you, Sam? Very well, thank you, Paul. Our guest this week has one of the most interesting jobs uh, in the Australian economics community. Uh, he also writes one of the most interesting and often entertaining markets notes uh, every morning. It's agri-commodity strategist at the CBA, Tobin Gorey. Welcome to the show, Tobin. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Sam, for having me. Uh, look, mate, I've been waiting to ask this all week, but uh, what's the story, Tobin Gorey? Oh, it's a big, long story, Paul. So which, where would you like to start, agriculture? Um, look, I think what's really interesting is all of this. I know uh, in your note in the mornings, you um, really regularly refer to the trade tensions. Mm -hmm. So we'll tackle that. Um, and I think we'll tackle um, currencies as well, because currency is so important at the moment. And this US dollar story having impacts on all you know, obviously commodity markets around the world uh, and there's implications for, um, you know, consumption in all sorts of different markets as a result of that. Um, and we'll talk then, I think, about a bit of the, the composition scope of the agriculture industry in Australia. Um, and what I'm really looking forward to is talking to you a bit about the economics of the food on your plate. Um, because, you know, uh, who doesn't love a steak unless you're a, a vegetarian? That's okay with me. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the how when we get these um, delicious commodities or these products from the, of the magnificent farms that we have here in Australia um, when they arrive uh, to us, the prices for those, there's a, there are markets almost every day buying and selling these goods. Uh, and uh, it's, there's a whole range of really interesting inputs. Uh, and it'll be fascinating to hear you explain how some of that works, Tobin. Okay, let's start. Let's dive in on trade. Um, your note often starts with some kind of reference to the trade tensions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what's really interesting to me is that people kind of feel we've, we've tried to tackle this on the show a few times, like looking at teasing out what the impacts might be for Australia. I think the obvious headline obviously is, you know, weakening in aggregate global demand would probably have some kind of reduction in demand for some, some of Australia's pro um, uh, products and we might get a slowdown in GDP growth. Um, but uh, this is really important, isn't it, uh, in the agriculture sector? Um, so maybe you can take us through um, how you're seeing it. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you refer to, Paul, to all those big macro impacts of, of trade, and, and I don't want to make light of those by not talking about them too much because they are important, but uh, where it comes into agriculture is that uh, at least part of the negotiation or the the tit-for-tat between China and the US has been about putting tariffs on agricultural commodities. And uh, obviously Australia, as you say, reduces a lot of those things. So it has, it has an impact here. Some of it can be bad. Uh, some can also be good too. So uh, um, I think the, I guess the, the really important character about this negotiation or dispute though is that it's being done live real time. So every time there's a movement in the negotiation, there's a change in the tariffs and so on. So that, that changes the ball game every time if you like. But also I think the other thing is relying on it being um, staying in place for a long while is um, because it does move so profoundly from negotiation point to negotiation point. So, you know, if, there, if there's an opportunity there, um, you know, I'm sort of encouraging people to take the opportunity, but don't um, don't plan your life around it for next year. Right, really there. interesting, right? Yeah, because what, what they do, um, the part of the process, is, uh, I've seen it, like this is the first time I've watched it in any detail. Um, and uh, it's fascinating. They publish a list of proposed goods um, and... 
you know, incredibly detailed uh, in some parts, you know, very specific on types of machine parts, et cetera, that might be affected and so on. But then they also have huge lists of um, agricultural and um, commodity products. We will talk about soybeans, but they are, you know, they'll talk about mussels. Uh, you know, they'll talk about, uh, you know, haddock. Uh, you know, th these things will all be subject to, to tariffs um, if they're being imported from China, if, if this is the U.S. proposing its it's 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 next round of tariffs so obviously as you're pointing out this can have a very distorting effect on demand from a particular producer right oh it does it's certainly i think the i guess if you you can sort of almost characterize these tariff you know, hikes as being designer tariff hikes they're designed to really um hurt the, the domestic constituencies of both governments, they, they tit for tat and, and, and doing with the farmers in the US, which is a very important constituency for Donald Trump, obviously. Um, so th that's why they've been drawn into this. Um, yeah, so it, it, there, is, there is round impacts, I think, um, but you know, as we'll discuss with soybeans, the, the distortions and so on that go with that are, you know, the markets work a way around them. Um, but yeah, you know, it's pretty easy to demonstrate that it's less efficient than it was before. Well, this was actually in your note. We're recording on uh, Thursday, and you, this was actually in your note this morning. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, the market finding ways around uh, China's tariffs on uh, on soybeans, and uh, this appears to me to be a, an extraordinary set of workarounds. Um, and I think it's worth backtracking as well. The um, the the corn exporting like the the Iowa um, uh, other states in the U.S. which are big areas that are support bases for Trump um, have been very directly targeted by the Chinese uh, in in retaliation. Um, so which is which makes it really interesting, right? Um, but talk, talk to me about what's happening in the in the soybean uh, in the soybean market. I guess I just just. As you say, take a step back. The thing with the soybeans is they're, they're an oil seed. So what, what you do with them is you effectively crush them and it turns into two products primarily. One's oil, vegetable oil, which you use for frying and, and adding to foods and so on. The principal one, though, is meal. It's about around about almost 80% meal, and that's used to feed to, to animals, but principally chickens and pigs, which are a very big part of the uh, Chinese diet. And they have millions upon millions, of obviously, of pigs and chickens at any one time. So they have a big demand for that. The thing about soybeans is it's sort of US is one of the biggest producers in the world, um, and the other, and that that crop is essentially being harvested now. Um, and there's the other crop is in South America, and that principally comes from well, it comes from a band of three countries: big part Brazil, a little bit in the middle Paraguay, and then goes south into Argentina from there. So, and the South American crop is collectively now bigger than the US one. Um, the thing is, though, China effectively. Uh, imports 80% of the world's soybeans. Wow. Um, so it, 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 the thing with this tariff is that, sure, the tariff is there, but there's really nowhere else to go that China can cover all their demand for meal for their... For their um, for right, their so they would take in the entire South American output, basically... Uh, it, it, it's, it's not the entire, but it's... it's it, it's you, you, They really... Um, it's not possible for China to alternatively source all its meal needs, right. um, excluding the United States. Right. Are there other countries looking at starting up soybean production now as a result? Uh, I think, well, there, there probably are, but the th thing with it is that, um, you know, it, it, there is just not um, another large slab of land that's of the right size that would grow, that would grow soybeans pretty quickly. And, um, as a, and, and the, the workarounds that go with it may obviate the need to do so because the thing about the, I mean, China has tariffs on US soybeans, um, but 
um, what's being done is is it's being those soybeans have been taken to third countries and the process there, so they become meal and they're processed, they're a transformed goods. So it's not just a matter of rebadging it's the same thing. It's 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 changing something else and then and then so the US beans indirectly end up in China anyway. Right. Um, and what's interesting to me about this is like does it does the cost of soybeans go up for China? Um, even if they were uh, importing from from South American countries, uh, just because of the transport distances or what? I think the um, I think the actual distances from South America to China and from you know the Gulf US is is similar. It's not exactly the same. It's not massively different. The I, I guess what he's talking there is that um, China is. Um, but China has this demand for the meal, so if they can buy meal from someone, they don't really care where it's from as such. But the, the countries that have significant soybean crops, like Brazil and Argentina, and also Canada has, it's very second tier, but it has enough capacity there, is that uh, the, they have processing facilities there. Uh, so and really, they'd be, um, they'll probably run most of the year, but they'll be seasonally most busy as, at the time just after harvest when there's lots of soybeans there, obviously. Um, now, because um, there well, will be a lot of US soybeans and they've run into local beans, um, then they can uh, you know, import them and crush them and pack them off to other places, China chief among them. Right. So, and then is it this thing of like, can they rebadge American soybeans as Canadian soybeans depending on the processing? I one well, thing is, it, it, I guess it, as long as they're transformed into something else, right. uh, and, you, you, and you wouldn't bother going halfway with it, you just go through the full the full bit. Thing is, the, the, the inefficiency that comes with that is that um, you know, instead of picking it up once in the US as soybeans, putting it on a boat and taking it off in in China, you put it onto a boat, take it somewhere else, take it off, processing it there, then putting it back on the boat and putting it there again. So there's 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 you know, several sources of inefficiency. In that, but the obvious ones are you got to pick it up and put it down at least two more times. Um, the, and the trip is longer. You're going away from where you're going and then going back again. So that, that and so that drives a wedge between it. What it does for pricing for China is that um, South American beans are more expensive because they're in demand, and U.S. beans are cheaper. But they're only cheaper to the extent that um, that's what you've got to pay um, to transform it and get it to China. Right. So that's how the price is being set for it. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, so what other commodities are being affected? So. Um, <laughs> in this whole process, um, what else is getting caught up in it? I think oh, the principal one seems to be U.S. pork, um, and they've they've suffered as well. So, the I'm not so so familiar with the details of that that one, but uh, they've got plenty of excess supply there, and that's got and that's one ramification for Australia is that we I mean we had I think we had excess supply of pork in any case, uh, but now um, you know this has been made worse because there's a, a global surplus of it as well, um, so that makes it more difficult for here. Um, on the on the, the flip side of that is that um, for quite a while the Australian canola, which is another royal seed, um, different portions of meal and oil, but uh, was pretty strongly in demand, so we've seen pretty good prices for it because you know the 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 products can be substituted to some degree for the soybeans products as well, meal and oil. Yeah. See, I have to feel for producers uh, in this environment because, um, you know, it's very difficult, particularly if you've got, you know, a, a farm that's, you know, very heavily weighted to one particular product. Um, and, you know, the White House publishes a list of um, of what it's going to take to the World Trade Organization. And all of a sudden, your future might be looking very different. Uh, you know, oh. is it a big talking point in the, in oh. the producer community oh. yet? or? It yeah, it is because it's had a big impact. So, I mean, it, it's, it points here that the U.S. soybeans are 
trading at about a $90 a tonne discount to Brazilian beans, which is pretty hefty in that. So and that thing is, at that level, you can pretty uh, How much do they typically sell for a tonne? 400-ish, 500-ish and so on. So that's it's quite a substantial discount. There's also, once I get down to that level, um, we have, um, it, you can actually pay the tariff, the 25% tariff and actually import them anyway. So down that level, but people are finding other better ways to do it. So the discount needs to be less. But the fact that discount is rising now is interesting because right now it's when soy, a lot of US soybeans are being harvested. So generally a time of price pressure in that region and the amount of soybeans in the, in, South America is actually very small because their harvest was six months ago now. So they have got many there. So the fact that it's reversing there is that. Um, but as you say, the, the interesting thing about what does that do to the farmer? They're being paid less. Um, and I guess, you know, in a sense that they're obviously not going to be very happy about that. But the um, I guess the, the thing here is, and there's a lot of angst about it initially when it was announced in May or even the lead up to that when uh, people were discussing this, this might happen. But... Um, and so there was, you know, it was kind of the phrase was trade, not aid, um, because they promised to make up the price to the farmers somewhat. But what seems to have happened, though, is um, they, I think they lost some votes in the midterm elections uh, there uh, in that sense. But it hasn't been a whole less bolus move because uh, I think people are viewing it as being, OK, well, this is midway through a strategy to get something larger done mm. in terms of trade access to China. Now, you know, really, I mean, it doesn't particularly benefit U.S. farmers, as such, because really the principal issues there from the American side are about intellectual property and and basically financial access to China, basically capital account stuff. Um, but they're sort of, I think they're willing to sort of, you know, well, let's see how it goes and gets it out. And I, but I come back to this point I made before: is that this can move quite quickly, so it can get worse. So there's no doubt about that in terms of higher tariffs and more things being under tariff. But there's also a possibility here that that there is a real upside for the U.S. president and the Chinese president actually making a deal of some sort. Now, whether that's imminent or not, so I think, you know, strategically you need to think about it as being, okay, well, the things that are there now um, may not, may, very good chance they won't be the same in three months' time, but they could be better or they could be worse. And um, Sam, we saw um, during the week just an example of how this, you know, you can get this sort of dramatic improvement um, uh, uh, in in the, the outlook for, um, trade in a whole bunch of commodities when China said it was sending one of its senior trade envoys over to the uh, uh, to the US and we're going to talk about currencies but uh, that moved things didn't it? Yeah um, you know the these trade developments as Tom says they jump around pretty fast you know as recently as a couple of weeks ago it seemed like it was escalating in a negative direction um, all of a sudden a Bloomberg report came out um, late last week um, talking about the, the two sides were thinking of getting together. And, you know, you mentioned currencies briefly. That, even a report like that moves currency markets. So And um, it's hard for, for those, I mean, I know a lot of our listeners are very uh, uh, up to speed on this, but for those who don't follow currency markets, uh, very closely, it is really hard to move them. Um, uh, <laughs> the only things that tend to move them really are central banks uh, a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, it's one of the trends we've seen in the last few years in currency markets that all of a sudden politics policy uh, announcements um, are starting to whip currencies around a, a bit more. Yeah, so I think, um, as Tobin says, just factoring in your risk profile in, in that agricultural sector is really interesting over the next few months. And, you know, the, the recent headlines have been kind of geared towards this potential meeting with, with Trump and, and Xi, Jinping, Xi Jinping, the two leaders at the end of this month. Um, there's been some kind of 
working towards that from both sides with with top level officials um, agreeing to meet, as you say. So it'll just be one that's worth watching. And, and if um, if there is a development, um, it could happen uh, the click of a finger. Um, so with the strong US dollar, right? The probably one of the biggest market stories um, of this year has uh, just been on a rampage, um, and we've seen. As a result, you know we've uh, we've had you know chaos in some emerging market currencies. So, the Turkish lira, um, uh, the South African rand uh, got you know got pummeled uh, earlier on this year. Um, both have recovered a little bit, or at least stabilized. Um, so, um, how does this affect commodity markets? Because so much of this is uh, is all priced in uh, in the greenback. Well, it's quite correct as you say. I mean. It diversity everything is traded in US dollars. Um, that uh, um, there's there's that part of it. So it's it's the numeraire or it's the unit of account. But there's also the other part of it too, particularly in agriculture, is that the US is such a big exporter of many things, agriculture, that uh, there's a you know there's sort of a feedback loop from, from the dollar to the price and so on. So, and you have um, you have many situations where. Um, if the US has got a lot of something, um, then the US dollar has to, the US dollar price has to keep on falling to make it competitive to get it out, out in the world market. And that's particularly been the case with wheat for a few years now. Um, but uh, but th then there's the other side of it though, is you take you go to you go to one where the US is not so important. So uh, if you go to like uh, whole milk powder coming out of New Zealand, so China and New Zealand's currencies have gone down roughly the same amount. Yeah. Um, so there's actually so the actual the, the, the and because it's really only them and the Europeans that um, uh, that export a lot of it. Um, then th those prices, like the dollar price, can actually adjust. But it's because the their currencies, like the yuan or the, the Kiwi dollar, are adjusting as well. Then there's sort of there's plenty of room for negotiation there because it doesn't have to include a U.S. producer, uh, you know, pushing out exports. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Do you think that uh, it puts some um, of um, the emerging markets at at risk because they um, in just in their local um, uh, currencies, um, they're just getting, um, you know, they're getting smashed uh, yeah. to some point. So, like in Australia, it's good for us in nominal terms. On, say, look at it from the federal budget uh, point of view. Strong U.S. dollar, um, iron ore is traded in in uh, you know our biggest exports, iron ore, coal, traded in U.S. dollars. Um, nominal level, we get uh, this great influx into the budget, and I. Genuinely think I think that data's going to be out in about ten days' time. We'll see the October numbers. Um, I think the budget is going to be very, very close to being balanced. Um, they were they were talking about you know a ten billion dollar deficit next year, and it's been that big uh, in the last few months that it's going to be getting pretty close. So so the MyEFO update will be very interesting. Um, but to back on the agricultural commodities. Um, how does this impact particularly like emerging markets which might rely on exporting particular types of uh, agricultural products? Oh, it's not doing them any harm because they're, you know, as you say, they're getting valuation-wise more competitive. The, um, I think if we think about the fall, uh, if we think about the point-to-point -point moves of some, some date, probably the, the one you do it from is really 14 because it, there was a six-month period everything's quite stable and you can sort of measure everything quite well from there. But so the, often the That's fall... That's good to know. So, so in 2014, there was a period yeah, where... The six-month window, I, I use that there. I probably have to... Probably have to hopefully I'll find another, another nice stable window soon to use because it's getting yeah. a bit dated, of course, but uh, I have to move that forward in time. But sure. it, it, you know, the, the actual move down in the currencies, like over 
not over that period of time, but over the last, say, three, six months or so on, they're kind of quantitatively similar. Um, but the thing is, it's always the basing point. So, you know, Brazil's Rai is has fallen a lot further. Like, it, it's a lot lower anyway. And and that, in a in a kind of just a computational arithmetic sense, it does boost their competitiveness. thing is, though, I, I think the uh, it's a bit of a careful what you wish for thing because generally if your currency is uh, weak and so it's substantially, like, you know, you you can um, you can go from Australia or the US and live like a millionaire there, mm-hmm. sort of thing. So that that's the kind of currency version you get conversion. Sorry, you're getting there. Um, then that tells you something about how it is to operate a business in the economy as well. Right. So it's not it's like the so the, the actual simple translation of a global price into into domestic currency looks lucrative. It's quite nice, but um, there's generally a lot of uh, a lot of other um, you know costs and difficulties that go with doing business in that country, and that's kind of Broadly reflective of that, but you know, having said that, in in the short term, you know, your currency drops twenty percent, you're much more price competitive. And so, um, if so, if things drop relative to Australia, then that's a bit that's a bit more difficult. Uh, Sam, outlook for the Aussie uh, for the for the US dollar. Sorry, um, uh, what do you think? So, um, it just seems to have been on such a relentless bull run mm. um, this year. Um, it has been on the march. It's um, it's really. Since about April, there's kind of been this broad trend, I think, looking at the US dollar index, which sort of compares the the USD against the basket of currencies. It seemed like April was this sort of switch point. Um, And since then, it's been on this steady march higher um, against the major currencies like the euro and the pound. Um, The Aussie's been caught up in that. So it was around that April point, it was about 77, 78 US cents, the Australian dollar. Um, it's dropped back, it's holding above 72 today. A couple of weeks ago, we were wondering if it was going to drop below 70. Um, so It's been really interesting. Markets have been getting beaten up, and normally when there's this risk-off mood, you see the Aussie will... Um, it's been pretty plucky, hasn't it, the last it week or so. Um, yeah. I mean, strong do- jobs data today. Again, we're recording on Thursday. Um, right. 42,500 full-time jobs put on last month, which is... A lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that gave the Aussie yeah. a bit of a jolt today, yeah. that's for sure. So, yeah, so the Aussie took another little step higher. So um, it's got a bit of a spring in its step. No, moment. it does. But uh, you know, going back to the USD, um, it's it's been just, uh, I think it's that, that move since April that I mentioned, it's just been a sort of um, relentless data move behind that, I think. Like you look at the unemployment rate there, it's dropped to the lowest level since the late 1960s. GDP growth thumping ahead. September quarter, I think, was 3.5% beat expectations. Um, so that factors into the outlook for US rates, obviously, and the US Fed's been ahead of most other major central banks in steadily tightening its its monetary policy. Um, so w- with that data behind it, um, markets are constantly adjusting to what they think the Fed's going to do. Most analysts seem to believe that uh, there is another rate hike coming before the end of this year in December. Um, and then the, the US dollar kind of outlook, I guess, is um, partly a function of how many more rate hikes there'll be next year. Um, going Throwing it back to Tobin, do you, do, do you think about um, the outlook for the US dollar um, over the next sort of six to 12 months in, in terms of your strategy as it relates to, to agricultural? Um, to, to the ag sector? Oh, certainly, because, um, you know, you, you, we're, we're making US dollar price forecasts. So, um, 
Um, now you can sort of you do that a lot with you know ultimately over a longer period of time. It's about sort of supply demand fundamentals um, and what how you think they'll evolve in time, but. Um, you have to – the US dollar is a rubber ruler, so it has to be – you have to calibrate it to where you think the US dollar is going to go as well. Now, uh, that, that could easily be um, – that could easily be a lot, a lot higher still. Um, now, sort of guessing it is, is not the point. The, the markets keep adjusting to it anyway, um, but it's just it, – it's a bit uh, different depending on the commodity, of course. So um, the US sells lots of beans, lots of corn, lots of wheat. Um, so that, that pricing is intimately related to the dollar. Right. And, uh, and and it fixes on that. It does have ramification back here, though, because, uh, you know, think about now, Australian wheat prices are quite high because we've had you know, a couple of pretty ordinary grain seasons and we're just coming through another poor one now, particularly here in the east. So uh, Australian grain prices, wheat prices are quite high. Um, thing is, though, because the because the Aussie's fallen so much, um, we're not that far away from being competitive still. Even though the Australian dollar amount you're being paid is actually quite high, so that's um, it, it, it. Really, it does work as as a benefit in that manner. So, but but again, it's sensitive. Actually, so if the US dollar goes down, then I'm presuming the Aussie goes up with that. If it does do that, but uh, uh, you know, then those prices have to fall. So it just it just made our we we. we Competitive at higher level price, Aussie dollar price levels than we are otherwise, and that now that won't benefit too many people in the east this year because there's not a lot of grain over here. But West Australian um, you know, growers are uh, going to have a very good year, well, a good to very good year, depending on you know how much weather damage they had. Yeah, yeah, and and it's great that they've got that uh, that mix of activity, you know, because uh, other parts of the, the WA economy obviously a little bit weak. We're going to take a short break. And uh, we'll come back and we're going to talk a bit more about the composition of the um, of the agriculture industry because obviously, you know, we think, when we think about agriculture, it's, you know, we think about farmers, but it's uh, pretty intricate. Uh, there's, a, um, there's a whole lot of machinery and moving parts to it. Um, and all affected, I think, it was really interesting hearing about the impact of the currency there. Um, so we'll be back right after this break uh, with Tobin Gorey. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan here with Sam Jacobs from BI. Uh, and uh, our guest is Tobin Gorey, uh, Agri Commodities Strategist at CBA. Now, um, agriculture accounts for what of uh, part of GDP? It's, quite, it, it's small. It moves it's around. It, it, it does. It moves around because it's quite volatile from the supply side, obviously. Um, but it's, it, it, it's only a few percent. Um, of employment or you know, however you want to measure it and so on. But it's it's kind of uh, – it it's a focus industry for us at CBA um, and a lot, quite a few other people as well just because there is um, there is a whole milieu of things going on that you're driven by um, – you know, at root, it's it's about all these uh, consumers in in countries in Asia who are you know becoming wealthy, and you know they consume lots more things then. Um, but you know, one of them is more food, but also better food as well. So that's kind of a beneficiary thing for Australia. So it has um, you know it has it's a value added at this level, but it's a, it's it's feed into you know the towns and and all the industries around that is quite actually large. So and particularly as you go into processing and and also the logistics. Uh, technicals being drawn out from Australia um, to so it gets to consumers in China. So it's fascinating the the whole supply chain. I mean, people talk about farm to fork, right, which is a very trendy thing that you. But the the supply chain really enormously complex. A lot of different um, uh, uh, players in there from you know. Um, the transport company themselves, but also then the ports, customs, um, uh, and the, the standards as well, uh, which are all tied up in this too. Um, so um, 
you know, what are the other things that you think about? Like when you think about the flow on effects of of prices moving around, um, the, as you said, you know, it affects towns. You know, and if you've got a if you've got a wheat town and 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 wheat prices are good, that town's gonna gonna do better. What, what are the different moving parts of it that you see that you think about that you know that'll be good for for this part of the this part of the agriculture uh, industry? Mm. Okay, the I, I guess there's there's it, it's it's quite a lot, and the thing is, I think bringing logistics up is, is a very important part of it because it's it's a fairly significant chunk of the cost of most commodities when they're moved around. So to actually get it from um, the raw material at farm gate until it actually turns into something that people have on their plate, um, there's a lot of people involved. Uh, and so there's and there's there's a multitude of aspects that we talk about. I'll just pick pick a couple of ones that I think are important. The logistics things is is partly important. You know, we've had um, uh, there's a lot of uh, like grain infrastructure this is for bulk type stuff for commodities in Australia, but and the capacity that's there is apparently is is you know most people think it's quite large and probably substantially larger than we'd ever use in a year. The problem is though that it's, it was built up under a different system. Um, it was kind of a monopoly and so on. So there's still quite a lot being built around that just to make it better than it is now. And you know even the federal government's taking part in this. Is that the train line that will sort of move up basically sort of you know in inland eastern Australia down to South Australia? Um, that'll be be part of that moving moving that around. We also have um, um, and just for you know horticultural exports out of Australia have been grown by uh, over the last sort of five years, sort of five year average v five year average. If you like, their values sort of grown sort of like it's over six times over that period of time. So now part of that horticulture is you've got to move this stuff quickly up uh, up to China. So what products are these? Um, um, fruits, um, nuts, right. um, so stuff that really has to get there fresh, essentially. Right. And so and, and what, what, so what you've seen is, um, you know, they built Wellcamp Airport near, near Toowoomba. Um, that now has, I think, I think it's all those daily freight flights up to China, that, but then that wasn't there. Um, well, it certainly wasn't there five years ago, I don't think. There's mm-hmm. a fight out of Canberra around as well. And I think there's one being, one being organised out of Victoria or Tasmania as well. So, again, it's an example of them specifically growing that supply chain because, you know, there's – it's um, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of places where you can grow food. Like you get a, you'll get a climate water bundle somehow, irrigated or from the sky, um, that where you can grow the food and so on. But um, there's no point having it there if – if you can't, can't get it to the market, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that and that, that's so that's so that's a very very important part of that, and that's and that's that's doing that. Um, the other sort of the other interesting aspect is just the amount of sort of uh, science and technology that goes into it. You know, so agriculture. I want to ask you about this. Yeah, really yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, it is. It, it, it's very very. It, it looks like a very rustic kind of industry because it's out there. It's outdoors. It's out in the country and so on. But the amount of yeah, guys in hats, you know, yeah, really right. jumping around the park. Yeah. Yeah. but they're all wearing like a metaphorical lab coat in the sense. So they're they've they've got because um, they're using a lot of science. They're dragging a lot of specialists outside it and so on, which is uh, something that's been enabled by. I think the higher prices the last decade or so, but also larger farms as well, um, at their scale, I can afford to usually more of these services. So that, that's done that. So that's that's the other thing. And then, so you get you know, the, the wilder shores of the science are, you know, a, a, a cow or a bull is, you know, it's a little biological factory, right? So it produces meat <laughs> um, or, or dairy as well in, a, in another sense. But, um, but you know, it's uh, if... Uh, if you have enough tech to, if I started again and rebuilt the meat factory, would I use a cow? And the answer maybe is not, um, because you know, because they, well, a because they're an animal and you've got to look after them, you know, treat them ethically and so on. So you need lots that, of land. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It does. And, and and also the other part of it too is, is you know, just greenhouse gases um, from all those cows. So like methane. 
um, the polite term for it, obviously. But uh, the um, <laughs> the uh, it has. Um, but you know, if, it, I think if you actually went and proposed to build a factory that pumped out that much methane now, in terms of these cow herds, you'd get a resounding no chance. <laughs> um, so that you think about it that way. So there, there is people out there who are trying to um, trying to get you know they're actually taking like cell cultures yeah, to produce synthetic meat. Yeah, 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 and also but also people doing the plant based stuff as well. I did an experiment with the plant based stuff at home when I um, I snuck it in for the family one night and was making Tuscan meatballs. There was some pork and there was some plant based. Um, there wasn't a lot of difference shown um, until I pointed it out to them and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, I actually made it so I, I, I didn't like it very much because it didn't smell like regular meat and so on. But, but, <laughs> it was, but anyway, yeah. it, it went out okay. But, but when you served it, yeah. Yeah, was, so, yeah right. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was interesting from that perspective. But, but there, is, there, there, is the, there is the thing that is like these are ideas. People are, they're not really, I think the plant-based ones are kind of like uh, scale, I think they're sort of in, in general, Availability in the US nowadays. The ones from cultures and stuff are still a long way, I think, from high, large scale commercialization. But uh, now that's the wild assures of it. So we, and just and just to tie that in with that, that longer term thing is, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll stop it in a second. Though. Yeah. The, uh, um, the, uh, the, the amount of food we actually need, okay, the current scale we get it is. Um, the, the moment a lot of those Chinese consumers are the rich ones in, in the, so they have like they're not they've got quasi Western diets and tastes and so on, but that's sort of a small fraction of the population. It's when the broader base of China starts really upgrading to those things where the scale at which things happen. You're and, talking hundreds of millions of yes, people. Yes, that, that, that's yeah. right. And yeah. and so so really the. The, there has to be enormous bulge net production. So whether that can happen environmentally or with the capacity we have as it is now, so that's it's just a force to make people think about new ways of doing things, and that's why um, that drive for productivity and the use of tech is actually in there. Um, you know, it, 15 years ago when I sort of started in ag commodities, um, the fact that there would have been an ag tech startup fund run in New York would have been um, well, you would be laughed at if, yeah. if you suggested it, but, but there is now, and it's yeah. um, it's got the point where it's it's attractive to a lot of young people just want to get into it, which is which is something that you know, ten years ago in agriculture was just not the case. Because the sciences, the like the the ideas that float around are fascinating. So mm. for everything from fairly simple stuff, which is kind of starting to happen now, which is you know the. Um, GPS monitoring of um, uh, you know crops and, and products in their location, etc., so that you can see them in the supply chain, um, and then also their environment, you know, monitoring of their environmental conditions. But then all the imaging, like so the earth map, the mappings, which tracks like the land use, and uh, the idea being that you, you use these satellites to say, well, um, over time, if you do it, you you, you track when you have go a good year and you have you know, good yield. This is just one example I've seen, um, and you can go, okay, well, what were the practices? Because we don't currently don't have measure any of this or capture any of that data, but now this is all starting to happen. So they, they'll keep very detailed records of how of the salinity, um, uh, the soil or the pH of the soil. Um, and then over time, they'll build it up and they'll they'll get to say, okay, well, this is actually the best management, best way to get the best yield and with the minimum environmental impact and all of that kind of stuff. It's absolutely fascinating. What about this um, vertical farming? Uh, is uh, yeah, that's another kind of out there example of it is that, yeah. is that um, you know, at some point, uh, and really the, the pressure that comes from that is that the sort of the amount of number of um, given climate water bundles in lo like logistically possible locations is 
is, I mean, a lot of them are being farmed already. They have been for thousands of years. So, um, so the pressure there that comes with that vertical farming type stuff is, well, if you're bumping up against the limits there, um, and you bump up those limits in several ways, A, this is not the land there. Um, but there's also um, stuff like, it's happened in New Zealand a bit where on the South Island, Canterbury there, where all the sheep have gone and all the cows are down there now, but they've got to a point now where there's so many cows that the runoff and the residue from them are starting to pollute waterways and so on. And yeah. so you get, you get these natural limits to it as well. So where do you go from there? Well, I mean, the dairy case, the next step is obviously fed dairy where it's on a hard, hard surface. It's quasi indoors and you clean up the mess a lot more easily. Um, but, but the thing is, but that costs money, right? So you have to, so that, that pushes the marginal cost up. So the pressure on them to, to if you're going to spend that to make it um, competitive for consumers is very, very large. So again, it just circles back, this draws this sort of scientific technology community that you're talking about. And I guess the thing with the data you're talking about is, now the data you say doesn't exist, doesn't exist in the software, exists in the wetware in our farmers' heads. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know, a lot of the time the, the the actual that passing on that knowledge is is there is a there is a one person who knows one or two or, you know sort of the different generations that know they pass it on to one another so they know like this paddock needs a bit more of this or you don't bother putting so much yeah. on there because it, it always works well anyway or and things like that um, but what what is being um, what is possible now with the, with the sort of the imaging and stuff that you're talking about is that that knowledge is not just in someone's head. Um, Shared with other farmers. Yeah, it, yeah, it does, and and also that also that allows um, it allows uh, the scale of farming to increase because you kind of to be successful in most places you need to have a reasonably intimate knowledge of. Uh, how the land performs in that farm because you can see it, it, they're very really uniform in terms of land quality. Fascinating, uh, fascinating area. It makes me um, uh, makes me very optimistic. I, I think it's great to hear. You know, like when you hear about these companies that are like, okay, we're going to go in and tackle this. We're going to have this um, challenge, particularly with demand for, you know, land intensive uh, commodities, uh, and that there's um, you know bright people jumping in and saying, okay, we're going to have a crack at uh, seeing how we can prove this. It does make it a very exciting place to be. You know, I, 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 as I say, I started this about fifteen odd years ago, and I've never regretted being in it just because it's, it's so deeply interesting. Also. Yeah, and the people. Um, I must say, it, definitely in terms of your industry liaison, uh, you're very lucky. Must um, be you know great bunch, great community to be moving around in. I'd say. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, one thing I'm uh, really uh, fascinated to hear um, from you about um, the different things that go into making up the cost of what we buy in the shops. Um, okay. You mentioned climate a couple of things, right? So, you know, uh, what's the term you use? A climate uh, water bundle? Uh, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. That's, yes. that's, I guess it's it's a land water bundle. So, right. I mean, there is a climate. There. So it just needs to be, I mean, whatever you're doing, it just needs to be, um, you know, for crops, it needs to be rained at the right time, not the wrong time. Um, and the soil obviously needs to be fertile enough as well to do that. So now we've been, I mean, you know, there's a lot of flat land out there. It's just like a go where you can pull the trees out and you can go. But um, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of other things out there, you know, there's um, because studies were done trying to estimate how much land there was, and they was done out of satellite imagery, and yeah, the teams of people who produce these things is like it's like a committee of fifteen people. There's so many disciplines involved in doing it. The problem with the numbers they get is they use these very high scale rules. So what actually turns out is you get a number, and the, there's a range of estimates in their studies, and the, the one sort of summary um, I went through was that we were at, we would almost run out. 
or we had actually twice as much as we've got now, right, which, okay. which is not really a, <laughs> yeah, it's not a particularly helpful so estimate <laughs> as such, yeah. because it's it's uh, it, it doesn't do that figures. But, as a, but what it's actually turned out is is the is it, it you know there are rules like um, certain uh, slopes of ground can't be used. Um, or if there's not enough rainfall somewhere, it can't be used. Oh, it's excluded. Um, what that effectively did was, once someone drilled it down to get like, ground truth, part of this is that you know, all these terrace farms, I mean, I, I, I guess you might have been, and probably a lot of our listeners have too, they've been to up to Bali and up to a board and seen all the terraces on there. Well, that, none of that land gets into that estimate because it's too, too slow. So we've actually, we've augmented that land um, and but using the terracing and irrigation is another very obvious one that's been around for thousands of years too. And but that's another example too. Around the um, around the Indus River in um, Pakistan, you know, it's a, it's a massive farming area, but its rainfall is nothing. It's only that they actually irrigate it out of the river that they actually have agriculture there. So you know, there, there's that, that sort of augmentation has been going on, but um, for many many years. So it's it's not due as such the augmentation, but the direction directions it actually takes is yeah. is very very different from before. So uh, climate. Um Overall climate and weather conditions, obviously, you mentioned, you know, uh, you mentioned earlier the wheat prices and WA, they're going to have a good year because the conditions have been good, et cetera, right? So, so your climate and your weather, um, that's one input, right? So, but um, can I start with beef, right? Now, I love steak. Um, so, but w what are the different moving parts of the, the, the price of beef? I guess because the uh, part of it there is uh, there's sort of two uh, core ways of getting up getting animals up to sort of slaughter weight and so on. So um, one of them is a lot of them are on pastoral land, so they've slowly gained weight. It's cheap, though. It's not, no one else wants to use the land for anything else. Um, it's got grass on it, so the, the, the cows eat it. Eventually, they go to market. Um, um, then there's another part where, the, from the, for a young age, the animals are actually quite in feedlots, and they're intensively fed, and that's, that's usually a faster process. Um, but you know, the, generally, a, a pasture-raised animal will eventually end up in a feedlot for a period, probably a shorter period. So your moving part there is, is you've got to move the animals where they are, get them sold, get them into the feedlot. At that point, you get um, uh, you go get the feed from somewhere. Um, so what, what happens in, in Australia, at least anyway, is that um, you know for many many in the east of Australia, we uh, we would export a lot of a lot of grain, so um, you know barley, wheat, and oats in the past, not so popular anymore. But um, what's happened over time is slowly is that that feeding population has gone up for for cattle but also for chickens and, and, and pigs as well, is that less and less is getting exported and more of it's being consumed domestically. And and, and this year will be a special, a particular year for, I mean, at some point in the future, we're expecting that, that Eastern Australia will actually consume more grain domestically than it does actually sell offshore. Um, that'll definitely be the case this year just because the crops are so poor here after quite a few poor years as well. So and so th th there's, that, there's that pressure point. And that, and that, that, that evolves what happens. So. Um, part of that, you know, infrastructure need out in out in sort of uh, in inland eastern Australia, down to uh, sort of that bend round into South Australia, is that you need to move a lot of animals around. You need to move a lot of grain round to to, to get it there. So that that, that is that's an evolution that's that, that, that's that, that is quite important there. So um, anyway, back to the point. So we've got to feed them, and they've got to be off go off and be slaughtered. Um, uh, uh, some of them are live exported. Um, 
the, the that industry from the sheep perspective is obviously under a cloud now um, because uh, because of the awful conditions which the sheep are put out there. I mean, uh, it's it, it's kind of interesting. It's it, it is a rich country standard though, mm. in the sense that it, like we're we're sort of wealthy enough to we've got the pro where you know we. Not only do we want the food to be nice, uh, we want it to be from, uh, but we don't want it, we don't want the animal harmed. Mm -hmm. We can afford to. I mean, it's an ethical question as well. But um, a lot of people who are, you know, um, on very low incomes in other countries, um, they're not particularly worried that the the vegetable oil, it, you know, at some point killed an orangutan habitat, or or they're not particularly worried about how the animals treated because they haven't, just haven't don't have the money for that. They're still struggling to make ends meet. But here, where we can afford that. You know, the higher ethical standard that's kind of in trouble so but that, that, that's that's still there and probably there for quite some time um but it just it, i guess it just it's the the cost of doing it the, the standard at which we, we think we should treat living creatures it can just, push up prices yeah well, can push up prices as well yeah. but so there's that, there's that part of it that, that that's one street but the other one is they get slaughtered obviously they go to abattoirs get killed um in certain ways um um, some for particular markets because um, for halal markets and stuff, they, they want it slaughtered in a particular way. Um, so, we, so we meet that need. Um, and so there, there's another, there is a, is a cost there. At that stage, because um, it's a fresh product. So, so are all, um, all abattoirs now in Australia, basically do they do use a halal method? Oh, I'm not, I'm not sure about that because I think, I think some, some will, um, but because the amount of beef that's going there is quite modest still it's not it's, it's grown a lot but it wasn't large and it's still not yeah, it's large-ish but uh, um, to do that so they're, they're doing more of that but it is just another another thing another feature of because food is it's not just the food in your plate it's kind of like how you think about it and how it looks and yeah. and tastes and lots of stuff too so we keep but what we do is we get richer as we add attributes to food and that's what we're still doing so um, now so you, you've got that you've got that, that, that cost there um, Australia has comparatively high labor costs um, so that that that, that, that slaughter and abattoir is there? I think the um, I think I'm not. I'm always a little bit sceptical about that because the the complaints about it are often done by people in the industry and stuff like that. And now they complain about that because they could give you a, a wage number from Brazil um, and things like yeah. that. But uh, it's you know. Um, yeah, yeah, we, again, we, we can in Brazil because our, our our slaughter costs are so high. Well, because we don't pay people. Yeah. Twenty cents a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, but the other thing too is, is the yeah. you know you start to equalise what the productivity is like, things like that. And and the yeah. thing is, you get you get companies, you know, giant global beef operations like JBS, right? So, and and they'll be not always, but pretty much continuously exporting beef out of Australia, despite the fact that it's 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 not, uh, um, um, you know. Um, it's not cost effective on the thing, but on, on a global basis, they're JBS and they want to be able to offer certain grades of meat and be a reliable supplier and so on. So, you know, Australia's a great location for that because it's it's um, it, it, has, it has a very good record with uh, sanitary things, um, and it's also a distinct region. So, you know, it, it, if if something goes wrong in Argentina, maybe there's a bit of a worry about Brazil as well. But it's not going to happen here in Australia. So yeah. that, that's kind of vital for them. Very very important. And sense. and there is a demand, you know, for Australian beef because increasingly, uh, I suppose, you know, um, more advanced, sophisticated um, diners, uh, and particularly that Asia market, right? So you you don't just order. Um, a steak you order an Australian one or an Argentinian one or, or whatever uh, and Australia's in a great position uh, for that isn't it yeah, yeah. Just yeah. The, there is I mean because we've I, I guess we've um, 
having a Japanese clients for many, many years is actually because they're quite very picky about their food and their, and their food culture is so much about making the most of those quite fresh ingredients rather than the preparation of it, which is more common in sort of European cuisine and Asian, uh, well, rest of Asia. Um, so they do that thing. So that's made us quite, quite good strict things. So and we've had, but th- th- like I say, that, that, that demand is there. So, and this is the better food part of it because quantitatively, the same amount of calories or whatever, or kilocalories of protein or whatever is being eaten, but it's just a lot better than it was before. So, you know, if you go, it goes up, it goes up to the high end of it. So, um, so, and that's the way it flourishes in Australia as well because you can't simply um, uh, just oh yeah, just grow the thing, bang it out the door, and so on. You've got to put a lot of thought into it, and it, it creates different pressure points for you know wagyu producers in Eastern Australia having a tough time of it because they, they're their processes or their feed rations and so on are very, very tightly confined and they're loath to actually change them over any short period of time right. because it'll, it'll affect the way the meat grades and so on. So that the so, so we're right up the value chain here, so we're talking about quite rich ones. So, but uh, yeah, a bit, you know, there's pretty good steak produced here. Um, the other other part, the other examples is like wine too. So you know, if you're talking steak, we have to have a Shiraz with it, of course. So of course, yes. preferably from Clear Valley for mine, if you like. <laughs> but uh, but it's uh, so we're exporting a lot of that. I love that stuff too. And you know, I think you alluded to it earlier when when you said that. Uh, Australia has a reputation as a clean, green kind of place. Now that, and and, and that reputation, it's interesting because it's partly built on a regulatory finickiness. Uh, anyway, that um, that uh, it won't allow anything in here. I mean, it's even even when you fly from the east here to WA, you've got to throw all your fruit and things in the bin because they don't want want any contamination over there. So it's almost you know. We have quasi two phytosanitary regions in Australia, just because that vast distance of the Nullarbor. Um, now that, that that's very good, and things, and that, that is, it's a real value thing because there are. Um, I've actually you know, spoken to different um, clients and prospects over time, and there was one one company from China down here. Um, they were involved in sort of horticultural fruit things. Um, and they had their, they had their big operations in China, but what they really wanted to do was have an Australian operation so they can brand some of it as Australian. So it's quite it's, it's as a real it's it's an intangible, but it has a real commercial value. Mm-hmm. Um, now the challenge for us then in that case is that is that um, that is a it's a perception asset. I mean there, there is something there is something you know that is real that is took because of the cost of that 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 finickiness about uh, quarantine and so on. But um, there's also you know there's the accident wave you have when something goes wrong and so on. So that's um, that, that that's kind of a risk a risk around that. So but you know um, people in Asia and all over the world actually, but people in Asia do look at Australian brands and even New Zealand brands to an extent too um, as being. Oh, that's good stuff. So, yeah. so you, but you're buying, you're buying from the top shelf when you're doing that, and that, um, and that helps with the pricing a lot. We we used to have when we first started uh, uh, business insider in Australia five years ago, and we had an office uh, down. We, we were lucky. We got a corner of an office in a little place down on Macquarie Street, and uh, the stores down there are at Circular Key, right, and. The, places like it's a tourist trap and uh, you know if you bought a coke down there it was eight bucks you know everything was wildly overpriced um you know they see you coming right fine it, we've all been in places where you know you pay an exorbitant bit of a tourist tax but there was a couple of the convenience stores there would uh, had on sale sydney air in cans so <laughs> they had, they had <laughs> empty cans with that looked like tuna cans, wow. um, like those little tuna cans with the little ring pull, <laughs> and uh, that you could buy for you know I don't know, well, uh, 
probably selling them for 15 bucks. I can never remember the price, but yeah, <laughs> here's a can. Oh, I, I, can I, I can partly believe it because uh, you know, in the dealing before I came down, uh, the uh, TVs in there, obviously, they were flashing up the Beijing's having the worst pollution in oh, three yes. years. I mean, it's like, right. It looks like I, I thought there was a fire going on, but it's just the air. Um, so, yeah, so I could, maybe I would feel like a can of Australian air. Yes, <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pay a good premium for it. Um, very, very quickly. Um, uh, another thing that's close to my heart, probably on it a bit too much, bacon, bacon prices. Um, well, now, I had looked at a chart. Um, I think it's, I don't know if it's Meat Livestock Australia or you know, somebody tracks these prices anyway. I looked at this chart and there was a bacon boom uh, uh, that maybe 2016 prices were really, really strong, but they've come off a bit since. Yeah. I, think, um, I guess that... Because from 2016, there's enough time to actually respond supply-wise effectively. Oh, right. And so we've got to be – plus the point I mentioned before, there's probably more sort of, you know, pork bellies and stuff available globally than there was before just because somebody isn't going to China or the pricing hasn't worked itself out yet. Because um, it's also perishable in some sense. Um, that makes the market more difficult as well. So, and I think you know, there's, the expansion has been large. The thing with pig populations, unlike the cattle population, which is you know, seems to be permanently stunted at low levels, is that it is – just the biological cycle means it's quicker to turn around, and it's and it's much more indoors and therefore controllable in some sense right. than, uh, than 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 cattle would be. So they're much more akin to chickens, which is uh, like that. So yeah, it, it can turn around that quickly. So there are then you get other things like um, you know, wool has been very very high, um, but that's hard to turn around quickly. Um, partly because challenged by the weather, so people couldn't maintain herds that, that, that the breeding capacity is down. Um, now the price has come up a bit now, but that's because it was a you know all time highs. Uh, even adjusted for inflation. Um, and actually, no, that, that's, that's probably gilding the lily a bit. It's it, it, certainly the highest it's been for a long, long while in real terms. But it, anyway, so the, the response there can't be that quick just because the biology and the breeding of it stuff just doesn't happen. Whereas with the pigs, it is actually quicker. And so 2016 till now is actually a reasonable period of time to get a supply response. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Sam, any uh, particular foods you want to ask Tobin about? <laughs> um, You've ticked off a couple of my favourites with beef and bacon. Um, let's talk about chicken. You, you mentioned it's, it's similar to pigs, but I know it's a huge market. I'm just interested in what percentage of, of that it makes up in terms of um, our exports to Asia. That, that I'm not sure about, actually. I don't have that number at my mental fingertips. I'm sorry, Sam. But, but, uh, no, it, not it, at all. I, the, the, the thing is, I, I think the, a lot of the, the people I've spoken to this is not really, really recently, but some more of the chicken producers are, they've been so domestically focused just because there's been explosive growth in its consumption. Um, that's partly driven by the fact that beef and at times pork as well has been quite expensive. Uh, but it's just, but it's it's ability, because again, because it, it's, if pigs are indoors, then, um, you know, uh, chickens are certainly indoors. Mm -hmm. um, as much, it can be much more so. And so, and by doing that, the control of the process you have is much, much greater. So it's, it's so the ability to have the productivity to force, like, so even if the price is falling because um, they've got such good productivity gains and so on, then they're probably still making pretty good money. Um, plus, you know, there's a few companies in Australia that have just um, really taken taken it from being a, um, you know, it was, it was quite a, it's quite a uh, balkanised industry with lots of very, very small producers. Um, some of the big ones now are just amazing the way they, they, the operations you see are just mind-bogglingly um, large, and wow, and and, 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 and efficient. Yeah. So, so that, acres and acres and acres. Yeah, there's and they, and and it's kind of indoors. I mean, and yeah, to some extent that's controversial as well because people aren't. 
particularly keen on the animals being kept indoors a lot of time. So there is that consideration as well. Um, the, the, a lot of the ones I've seen, which and and that could be easily biased because generally I need to get wheeled out, wheeled yeah. out to the, to the to the modern better ones and yeah. so on. So I, I I wouldn't say I had an eye on it. the ones I've seen. Are, are, the chickens look just happy to me, right. but but you know that that, that I can't listen to the endorsement of everybody out there, obviously. So that's that, that is an issue that goes with it. So, but again, but that is that that that's adding that attribute again to the food is that is that not only has got to be good food, um, like it's got to taste better than something else, got to be done properly and so on, but it's also I don't want it to get to me as, at someone else's or some other creature's expense. Yeah, and yeah, that, that is definitely part of that. Yeah, a trusted supplier that you know there's a well some kind of standard yeah. of of treatment. Really, really quickly, um, uh, the other thing. So I can't believe I get to talk to you about. So we've done. We've covered off chicken, which is great, with steak, wine, um, bacon, uh, cheese. I think we'll round we'll round out on cheese. Um, oh, dairy, obviously, dairy has just been uh, you know a bit of a revolution in the dairy industry um, uh, here and in New Zealand the last few years. Uh, it's been been pretty extraordinary. Um, uh, but maybe you can talk about, you know, just what drives those cheese prices, the products, uh, you know, innovation, the new types of um, products that that, um, that people put out. The thing is, um, actually, I'm more of a consumer of cheese than a researcher, but uh, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll say. But, uh, but it, it, the, the context here is that Australia's uh, dairy industry, it's about a, like a nine billion litre thing. New Zealand is... Well, twice that size. So, wow. so yeah. a, a, a lot of it actually gets here, ends up being consumed domestically. We've had, and the thing is, part of Australia's foodie culture is that actually because it's been demanding good, good food. So all those really stingy, smelly, stinky bishop type cheeses and those, you know, those body crumbly cheddars and all that stuff everybody loves to finish the wine with, obviously. Yeah. We know how to do those things. And because it's a, because it has, so for that upper, upper echelon, we, we do export things out of that. So it's quite, it's quite valuable in that sense. Um, but the thing is, again, it's, it's about half the milk we produce ends up being consumed domestically, either as milk or generally as other products and so on. So that, but it is, but it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a key niche thing because once you've got a brand that is very, very good, then uh, you're going to exploit that. It's fascinating. Um, our guest this week on the show has been uh, agri commodities strategist uh, at uh, the CBA, Tobin Gorey. Uh, Tobin, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Fascinating story, Tobin Gorey. Uh, also here with us um, this week has been uh, uh, Sam Jacobs, standing in for David Scott. Uh, Sam, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Cheers, Paul. Really, uh, really appreciate it. Always good to good to sub in for Scotty when I can. And um, I feel a lot smarter about the agri industry after that, that's for sure. Yeah, all right. Um, I think I'm going to go off to the Provador on my way home and uh, find some <laughs> of those ingredients we've been talking about. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on iTunes under Devils and Details or search Devils and Details wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter at BIAUS uh, and you can find myself, Paul Colgan, uh, and Sam Jacobs on Twitter individually. Uh, we'll catch you next time.